Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Mark Allward, associate at Taylor McCaffrey, the ELA member for Manitoba, Canada. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to bring in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their clients move through these challenging times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are going to be chatting with two of our members from Ontario, Canada. Joining us on the program are Jeffrey Stewart and Shana French, lawyers at Gerard Coos. Welcome to the program, Jeffrey and Shana. How are you doing today? Great, thanks. Doing well. So folks, as Ontario gradually reopens over the summer and the impact of COVID-19 on our workplaces hopefully lessens, now more than ever, employers have questions about how to safely return employees to the workplace. As a result, our listeners would have interest in reviewing some common issues facing employers in Ontario as we move toward our new normal. On today's episode of Employment Matters, we will focus on three main areas. First, vaccinations for COVID-19. Second, leave and accommodation. And then third, reintegration of work. So we'll start with COVID vaccinations. One question that employers have been asking is whether they can mandate vaccination against COVID-19 as a condition of employment. Can an employer do this, Shana? Well, to give you the lawyer answer, yes, but it depends. In most cases, an employer can require COVID-19 vaccination as a condition of employment, but there are many caveats and considerations to this. I'm going to start with the human rights, and I'm going to flip it over to Jeff to talk about the labor and employment side of things. From a human rights perspective, an employee unable to receive the COVID-19 vaccine due to a health condition or religious belief could claim a requirement to get vaccinated as discriminatory. Should this happen, the employer needs to show the vaccination policy is a bona fide occupational requirement and then assess if the employee can be accommodated without undue hardship. Each request must be assessed on an individual basis and possible accommodations could include that you exempt the employee from the vaccination requirement and move them to a remote work arrangement. Or if they're in the workplace, a physically distanced workstation. You have to maintain continued use of PPE to mitigate transmission, possibly even after the public health orders no longer require it. They can also place employees on a leave of absence for the period of time where the employee can't get the vaccine if it's related to a temporary medical condition. So there are a lot of accommodation options. And of course, as always, accommodation remains the regime of the employer. So just because an employee may put something forward doesn't mean that that's what the employer has to determine is the appropriate accommodation. But again, it has to be an individualized analysis. Jeff, now that I've laid the landscape for the human rights piece, do you want to step in on the unionized and non-unionized considerations? Of course. So the human rights obviously applies to, to both contexts, so Shana's points are applicable in both, but it's certainly easier to implement a vaccination policy for non-unionized workers compared to unionized workers, but doing so may not be without financial risk. Depending on the nature of the workplace or the company's justification for requiring mandatory vaccination, refusing to get vaccinated by an employee in and of itself may not be just cause to terminate that employee without notice. 
So for example, a court could look at the refusal to vaccinate by someone who works in a long-term care home and who's routinely in contact with vulnerable people as part of their job, much differently than someone who works in the back office of a manufacturer in their own office and for whom physical distancing is quite easy. So as a result, if the employee does refuse to get vaccinated in accordance with the policy and the employer decides to enforce their policy by terminating that employee, then depending on the specifics of the situation, that employee is likely not going to be terminated for just cause. And in which case, there's costs associated with that in terms of notice of termination. In Ontario, if they have an Employment Standards Act contract, they're entitled to notice of termination and severance. If they don't have a contract limiting them to that, they're getting common law, which for your longer service employees can be quite expensive. Turning to the unionized environment, it could be challenged by the union as violating the collective agreement. Unlike our non-unionized workplaces or the majority of non-unionized workplaces, arbitrators have found a right to privacy in most unionized contexts. And privacy includes things like personal health information and those decisions. So if you're going to do that in a unionized environment, you really want to establish that the policy is reasonable for health and safety purposes or other work-related purposes, but you need to think long and hard about why you're requiring mandatory vaccination. The majority of the case law we have on vaccination policies is coming from the unionized context and it involves the healthcare sector, but they're not related to COVID, they're related to influenza policies. Even though they're addressing different types of ailments, we think the principles are, are instructive for employers when designing their policies. So policies that were found to be reasonable had the following common features. They applied to healthcare workers providing care directly to vulnerable populations. So they were targeted in terms of who they actually applied to. In the event of an influenza outbreak, an employee was not permitted to work unless vaccinated or had begun another alternative viral treatment. The employee was excluded only for the duration of the outbreak. So with COVID, this requirement might be a little harder to meet because as we've come to learn, unfortunately, COVID isn't seasonal like the flu. It's been around for far too many months as it is. And the policy itself was non-disciplinary. So there were options to an employee who refused to get vaccinated, such as taking an alternative treatment. Currently not really an option with COVID, but the following are that you can get, put someone on an unpaid leave of absence if they want it. Maybe they use their vacation credits or some other type of bank time to offset the financial impact while they're out of the workplace. Like I said, these are not all on point with the way COVID is playing out compared to the flu, but these are some instructive principles that we do have in terms of trying to design an effective workplace mandatory vaccination policy. So those are really the differences between unionized and non-union. And I'm going to pass it back to Shana to kind of wrap up with some best practices for having a mandatory vaccination policy. Thanks, Jeff. And I think going through what you said, I really want to underline again that we haven't seen adjudications of COVID vaccine policies yet, but it remains our view that employers can require COVID-19 vaccination as a condition of employment. But given some of the risks and potential costs, we encourage employers to assess whether as an alternative to a mandatory vaccination policy, they look at an optional COVID-19 vaccination policy with incentives to get vaccinated. Before implementing a COVID-19 vaccine policy, employers should consider the following. One, whether educating employees or offering incentives would increase the vaccination uptake before mandating vaccination for work. Limit the policy's application to higher risk employee categories, such as front facing or employees working with the public. Instead of discipline, consider whether unpaid leaves of absence would work. Although that could lead to a constructive dismissal claim, 
So care must be taken here in the event of you're dealing with a non-unionized workplace. Give the option of continued PPE use if the person doesn't want to get vaccinated and there's no prospect that that's going to change on the horizon. And finally, if unionized, tell the union in advance and give them a copy of a draft for comment before implementing. You're not asking for their agreement, but certainly giving them notice will put you further ahead in the process. Thanks, Shana and Jeffrey. That's a great overview of some of the issues with COVID vaccination that we're facing specifically in Ontario and overall in Canada. Related to that, is an employer able to request that an employee disclose their vaccination status? Yes. In Ontario, there's nothing unlawful about asking an employer for their vaccination status for most employers. There are some exceptions for, for public sector employers for example, but generally speaking, there's no privacy law that would prevent you from from doing that. And in fact, doing so could help employers meet their duties under the Occupational Health and Safety Act to take all reasonable precautions to ensure the safety of their employees. That does assume that these employers are coming into contact with one another opposed to employees who largely work outside of the workplace. And collection of this type of information could also be appropriate when an employer is offered incentives for employees to go get a vaccine, such as a financial payment or something. So you should be able to get that information to justify and substantiate that the person is entitled to that incentive. And to be honest, offering an incentive could be the carrot to try to get this information. But again, employers need to be cautious here in terms of what they're asking for, and importantly, how they're going to store that information securely. If the employer is going to ask for this type of information, they should explain to employees why it's necessary. So it's being collected, for example, as part of the employer's obligation to provide a health and safe work environment so they know who's vaccinated, who's not, and who's going to be in close contact with each other so they can make appropriate considerations around the structure of the workplace. We would also suggest taking steps to ensure any information collected is stored securely and subject to appropriate safeguards. It's not disclosed to anyone other than those who actually need to verify the vaccination status. And if it's going to be disclosed to a third party, that that only occur with the employee's written consent. Another important consideration is whether the workplace is unionized. Just like a mandatory vaccination policy, this is a factor that could influence your ability to actually do this as employers. And in this situation, the employer will have to show the collection of this information is reasonable and what it's tied to in terms of what is the purpose behind the collection of this information in order to withstand a grievance. Finally, if the employee chooses not to disclose their vaccination status, employers have different options available to them. They can proceed as if the employee is not vaccinated and require the continued use of PPE, even if it's no longer required by a public health order or some other type of government law or order. They could decide for the employee to continue to work from home as long as that works for the the employer. They could also make special arrangements in the workplace to avoid close contacts, such as separated offices, a glass barrier, or something like that. Although depending on the level this is taken to, we could see creative plaintiff counsel taking a run at this being a constructive dismissal. So you'll want to ensure the measures you take are actually related to health and safety and are not geared towards some type of public shaming, as that would get you in trouble with point of counsel. And finally, the other option is you could try to terminate the employee for not disclosing the information. But much like a mandatory vaccination policy, this termination would not be viewed as cause in the eyes of the court. It's not going to be sufficient grounds to terminate and get out of the notice period. So again, depending on the nature of the job, how long that person's been employed with you, It could be a costly way to try to enforce the policy of requesting vaccination status information. 
Thanks, Jeffrey. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about leave and accommodation, which Shana touched on during the overview, but I think is important that we get into in a little bit more depth. One question that I think our listeners would be interested in is come September when we go back to school and the kids go back to school, many parents will hope that's going to be in-person learning. Does an employee have an entitlement to insist that they work from home? Thanks, Mark. It's funny that you say that many people will be hoping for in-person learning. I think desperate is the turn of phrase that comes to my mind. But in any event, before I get into it, I would like to point out that where we have been for the last year and a half has been adapting to a situation. So the framework that we've treated remote learning and children being online at home and parents having to shift their schedules to accommodate that is a different landscape from where we hope we're going to be in September when schools are back in in in-person learning. So assuming that schools have an in-person learning option, when an employer begins the process of returning employees to the physical workspace, it should expect that there will be employees who wish to remain at home and either request an unpaid leave of absence or continued remote work arrangement. And that's not always going to be because of children working at home. I want to start as a premise that we see a lot of employees requesting that remote work arrangement because they're reluctant to resume their commute. They find that they are more productive at home and a myriad of explanations. Depending on the reason for the employee's request, the employee may be entitled to an unpaid leave of absence under the Employment Standards Act's Infectious Disease Emergency Leave. We often refer to that as the IDEL. This leave does apply to circumstances where an employee is required to remain at home to provide care and support to a family member who must be at home for COVID-19 related reasons, including a child home due to a school or daycare closure. Currently, it's the position of Ontario's Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development that a parent who chooses to keep their child home, even though in-person learning resumed, is entitled to the IDEL. So I want to focus, though, on the human rights considerations because that IDEL landscape can change and we anticipate it will change as a function of what the government provides from an online learning perspective for the children. So again, moving to the human rights piece. In order to be able to demonstrate a need for family status accommodation, which would be the foundation for that request to work from home, if it's to provide care to your children, an employee will be required to demonstrate that they are in a parent-child relationship and that they would suffer adverse treatment if they were not able to work from home. So in this context, adverse treatment generally means that there would be a negative impact, which results in real disadvantage to the parent-child relationship and the responsibilities that flow from that relationship and or to the employee's work. To this end, it's appropriate to consider other supports available to the employee, such as whether there are other adults in the home who could provide care or outside care providers, But there's no obligation for an employee to have exhausted all options in seeking childcare before requesting accommodation from the employer. And that's important to note because that's been a progression of how Ontario adjudicates family status obligations. 
So in most cases, an employee who has the option of sending their child to school or daycare during work hours and elects not to do so may have considerable difficulty successfully establishing a legitimate need for accommodation under the Human Rights Code. So in that respect, a decision not to send a child to school due to a fear of COVID-19 is more akin to a personal choice than a requirement that flows from the parent-child relationship. But that duty to accommodate may still be engaged if schools and daycares close again due to an influx of COVID-19. And I'm crossing my fingers so hard as I'm saying these words. Schools and or daycares are open, but a child has a medical condition that necessitates that they remain at home or an employee requests a schedule modification or partial work from home arrangement to accommodate when the employee's secondary school age child is home for remote learning. If an employee requests accommodation on the basis of any of the above noted reasons, the employer has the right to request detailed information to support the need for the accommodation. And this would include information about the child, such as their age, and where applicable, if a medical condition is at play for the child, information from the employee's child's physician relating to that medical information and the child's inability to attend at school as a result of that underlying condition. If necessary, information could also be requested from the school board to verify the schedule if needed. And if you're getting to that point, things are probably getting very fractured in that dialogue with the employee. But nonetheless, it is something that you may seek if you have fundamental questions of what accommodation is required. An employer would also be entitled to ask for information about what other supports may be available to assist in providing care for the child during working hours as well as information about the level of care or assistance the child actually needs during the workday to establish whether the employee will truly be able to perform work at home while caring for the child. Because again, as an underlying principle, if an employee has to be at home to provide care to their child while they undertake online learning, there's a recognition that that may impact their ability to perform the essential duties of their position. So assuming the employee has established a level of need and the duty to accommodate has been triggered, what next? Well, if the duty to accommodate is triggered, an employer must determine whether the request for accommodation can be accommodated without causing undue hardship. Reminding you that accommodation is an individualized assessment, for some positions, a work-from-home arrangement is easily accomplished. It might not be our ideal, but it is fairly efficient and something that the employer can accommodate. In many cases, an employee making a work from home request in this context may have already been working at home for a period of several months and may be asking for this as a continuation of the status quo arrangement. In evaluating the request for accommodation, the employer will need to consider the ability of the employee to fulfill the essential duties of the role remotely. And if there are concerns about the ability to perform the essential duties of the job, consideration must then be paid as to whether there are other roles or positions available to the individual on an interim basis to fulfill their request to accommodate. And on that, from a practical perspective, when you are defending your decision on efficiency and the ability to perform the duties, it can't be anecdotal. A lot of employers have an intuitive sense of how productive an employee is going to be or is being remotely. 
but you need something more tangible other than your sense. So for instance, if it's a sales employee and you're able to identify that their sales have dropped by 50%, but their peers have increased by 150%, that's the type of analysis that you will engage in to establish whether it's feasible that someone is working remotely and performing the essential duties of their position. If a decision is ultimately made to deny the accommodation request, ensure there is the necessary documentation to support the procedural steps, as I said, that the employer did go through the process of assessing the accommodation request, the reasons for why that employee's work is not suitable for remote work, and the alternative rules or arrangement it considered in determining whether there was any prospect of accommodating the employee in the remote work arrangement. Thanks, Shana. I definitely agree with you that people are desperate for the kids to be going back to in-person school. And that was a great overview of some of the very many considerations that exist when we're talking about continuing to work from home and potentially having to accommodate employees. I want to move on one more time and talk a little bit about the return to work and reintegration into the workplace. So what are some considerations that employers should have or will have as employees start returning to their physical workplaces? So in addition to the the public health requirements that are out there and the other related government orders that will address how and when the majority of employees ultimately return to the physical workplace, there are other considerations for employers to keep in mind. And some of them we've already talked about on this podcast, including human rights accommodation issues, whether or not people have access to other types of statutory leaves for as long as they're in effect. But there are other considerations that need to be taken into account. We've all heard or read the news stories about employees who are looking forward to returning to the office again, but not necessarily five days a week, maybe two or three days a week, days that they ultimately get to pick. They want flexibility on how often and when they need to physically report to the workplace. Some employers want to give employees that flexibility. As it turns out, working from home is more productive than previously thought it would have been and maybe as a way to decrease the size of their office footprint and make some cost savings there. But in implementing these types of arrangements, the employer needs to remember that at the end of the day, when people are returning to their workplace, the Occupational Health and Safety Act is there and they need to be cognizant of what it talks about and that they have to take all reasonable precautions for the protection of their workers. Included in this obligation is a requirement to assess the health and safety risks of the workplace and to implement measures to address those risks and provide training and instruction to workers on those risks. The resumption of operations in person for for many employers could also very well result in another increase in work refusals with the Ministry of Labor. So it's important for employers to proactively consult with their workplace health and safety rep, their joint health and safety committee, and their union if they have one, about the protocols that they're gonna put in place and the practices that they wanna put in place before people come back into the physical work environment. It's also important to make sure you're communicating with your employees about what the new safety measures are and what the procedures are going to be before the employees come back to the workplace. And if you're going to still be using PPE or it's required by a public health order and it's novel PPE that people aren't used to wearing, the workers should be trained on how to actually use it at this point in time. And once the workers are back, we need to make sure we're actually monitoring and enforcing our new health and safety protocols and procedures on an ongoing basis. Following a return to the workplace, having all these policies and procedures in place at the start is great, but they're not very effective if we're not actually policing them and monitoring them to make sure people are following them and that we're still trying to provide a health and safe work environment for the employees. 
And a lot of employers are likely going to get or have been receiving the request for a flexible work arrangement in terms of how often that employee needs to come to the workplace. And if the employer is interested in entertaining those discussions or considering those discussions or even maybe implementing some type of flexible work arrangement, we'd recommend that you have a very clear policy setting out the expectations around how this arrangement is going to work in terms of how often you can work from home, when they need to be in the workplace, and who they need to notify, if they need to notify anyone about when they're making that type of selection. So the policy should be clear that the employer has the discretion to require an employee to attend the physical workplace when it needs them to, and also have the ability for the employer to end the work being remotely set up at its discretion and its sole discretion. It should also include reminders to employees that they're still bound by all the company policies and that the employee should accurately record all hours that they're working when they're not in the workplace. And they should be submitted to someone for the company so that we can be aware of any type of overtime claims that are out there or claims for unpaid wages. And you'll also want to think around what are the security requirements on people working from home? How are they storing company documents? How are they storing company information? And a lot of this, given we've been in this pandemic for well over a year, has been thought about. But you want to make sure that you're modifying your policies to reflect a situation where people will be coming into the workplace and leaving the workplace and working from home or different locations much more frequently as we return to the workplace. So those are some top considerations that we've been seeing come up with our clients in this area. Thanks, Jeffrey. This has been a terrific and extremely informative discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Jeffrey and Shana. Thanks for joining the podcast. If you'd like to connect with Jeffrey Stewart or Shana French, you can find their bios by clicking on their names in the description of this podcast. Please visit www.ela.law to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Mark Allward. Thanks for listening.